0: You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marshall's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Richard Maher entitled A Duel Between Jacobites.
1: Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome to the final paper of this particular panel. Um, over the course of this conference we've gone from rebellions to refugees, from forest fassa to fortresses and from plantations to parliaments. But now to finish with something a little bit more light-hearted. Now, I invite you now to join me on a journey to a sleepy mountain town in the centre of the Italian peninsula in the early 18th century where we will encounter royalty and revelry, beauty and dalliance um, frustration, but above all, folly. Adherents of the exiled Stuart claimant to the thrones of Britain and Ireland, James Stuart III, are known as Jacobites and are also well known for their quarrels and rivalries among themselves. However, an incident described in a letter published by the Historical Manuscript Commission in the Stuart papers describing a duel between two of James's Irish followers, Captain Charles Wogan and Major Donald McMahon, would certainly win the prize for the most ridiculous. I'd also like to note here, actually, the, uh, the, the, the value of Edward's core's work for fleshing out key details of this paper. Uh, before we get to the main event, a little context will help us though. In October 1717, in the small town of Urbino, James Stuart III established his small court in exile and continued to pursue international diplomatic channels to gain allies who would assist him in his restoration to the thrones of Britain and Ireland. James had only been born when his father, James II, was deposed by Dutch stadtholder William of Orange in 1688 and he had been raised in exile at Saint-Germain in Paris. He had recently seen his greatest chance at a restoration shattered when the ill-fated rebellion in 1715 was put down by his recently crowned Protestant Hanoverian rival King George I. Two years later, in 1717, James was forced to leave the kingdom of France with his court as a result of the Treaty of Utrecht. So you can imagine um, the gloom enveloping James at this particular time in his life as his court was pushed to the other sides of the Alps, the other side of the Alps making the logistics of his restoration that much more complicated. And there's a fine portrait of James on screen for you there, uh, and a signature as well, actually, which is on a document in the National Library of Ireland. Uh, he's referred to as the old pretender by his whig detractors in London, but uh, for, by his, uh, uh, as the Savalier de St George by his friends. Um, James' beleaguered court has been described in jest as a movable feast. For after he'd been asked to leave Paris, he and his followers first went to Bar-de-Duc, then to the papal enclave of Avignon in the south of France, then to Pizarro on the eastern Italian coast, before finally settling for a brief sojourn, again a year-long sojourn in Urbino at the Pope's invitation. And uh, this map here, a fairly contemporary map of 1714, you can see them being pushed further and further away. Obviously they're an obvious threat the Stuarts, if they're housed here in, in France, uh, and with such close proximity to the Kingdoms of Britain and Ireland. But as a result of that treaty, they were pushed to the other side of the Alps very far and ultimately ended up in Rome afterwards. He settled in Urbino at the Pope's invitation. Yeah, So James was reluctant at first to accept, fearing that he might alienate his Protestant subjects at home and supply more ammunition for his weak detractors in London. Nevertheless, James obtained quite a prestigious residence at the Palazzo Ducale in Urbino, a city of the Papal States and the hometown of Pope Clement XI himself. As for the duelists of this paper, Captain Charles Wogan had participated in the unsuccessful Jacobite insurrection of 1715. The Kildare man cheated the hangman's noose the night before his trial after he'd been arrested after the insurrection and escaped Newgate Jail. He fled to France and was swiftly brought back into the service of James III as a special agent in Lyon. Major Donald McMahon had served as an officer in Arthur Dillon's regiment in the Kingdom of the Service of France. James had invited both men to join his court in exile to serve alongside two other Irishmen as professional internal security at the court, being professional military men themselves. Both Wogan and McMahon had enjoyed his favour, He had recently chosen Wogan for a sensitive mission to tour Europe to find him a suitable match for marriage from among the noble families of Europe and he had recently elevated McMahon to the rank of colonel. His good opinion of the Irish gentleman would soon be put to the test. The Palazzo Ducale itself was as impressive a structure then as it is today. I have an image of it up there, a nice contemporary ink print of it there, this particular aspect and it draws your attention to these two towers uh, from that particular angle, it provided suitably prestigious accommodation for the de jure king of Britain and Ireland. The palazzo was built in the second half of the 15th century and had in the intervening centuries come into the possession of the papacy. It was described in favourable terms by members of the court and may have been the main reason why James chose to settle his court there to begin with. There was enough room for all the members of the court to lodge at the Palazzo and it had been newly renovated and furnished. There was a large inner courtyard which I have on screen for you there, a library and archive, a garden, a theatre, a tennis court, and comfortable bed chambers. Yet despite the fabulous the fabulous lodgings, a number of disadvantages soon became apparent. The town is situated on the tops of two hills and is surrounded on all sides by hills and mountains. And this made walking in the town and its environs a strenuous activity, but it also meant that during the winter months, which were very cold indeed, the roads became almost impassable, making communication and supply very, very challenging. And that's not ideal when you're trying to conduct a royal court and negotiate different ties and diplomatic uh, channels for obtaining a restoration. So there were a number of, of, uh, of things that went wrong. The bad weather was exacerbated by a strong and ever present wind called the Corina, making the remote town all the more inhospitable during the long winter that the court remained there. The members of the court uh, took to indoor activities mostly, including billiards, cards, tennis, shuttlecock, but most importantly, music. Those who were not invited to eat with the king formed clubs and ate together in their apartments, splitting the cost of hiring a local cook to come uh, to keep expenses low. Most of the members of the court could not speak Italian, making it difficult to socialise with the local population than being mostly made up of Scotsmen, Englishmen and Irishmen with some French and some Italian servants attached to the court. So I think the total number was 33. Um, so in addition, James had made it clear that he would not host any women at the court until he himself had married. So now you've got a real image. It's nearly 100% masculine court, right? Now, this produced unexpected results of its own with comments made by a high-ranking official at the court of what he considered to be thoroughly immoral and scandalous behaviour between and among some younger members of his majesty's court. Now this detail adds a splash of colour to us for what otherwise is quite a dull picture of a remote town and the tedium which went hand-in-hand with the life in exile um, so, it is in this context that we arrive at the main incident described here uh, in this paper. In a letter written by James' Secretary of State, John Erskine, Duke of Mar, to James Butler, Duke of Ormond, Mar wrote that the incident here described was as odd a quarrel betwixt two men as you've ever heard. Having had differences in the past, it was believed that Wogan and McMahon had put their previous dispute aside. The two had in fact become good companions, taking trips to the countryside, lodging together in rooms on the second floor of the Palazzo Ducale. According to the Duke of Mar, Wogan and McMahon had invited some of the other gentlemen of the court to their lodgings to sup with them. By all accounts, the two had seemed perfectly convivial, and the last two who left the party said that they had left Wogan and McMahon hugging and dancing together. We've all been there. <clears throat> sounds like a good crack. Uh, however, in the following days when pressed for a report by an official of James III, Wogan stated that at some stage during the merriment, McMahon took him by the hand and squeezed it harder than he ought to and believed McMahon had designed to affront him. Wogan didn't say anything at first, but the following morning, having reflected on this and as he writes several other things, he questioned McMahon about it all who, not giving him the satisfaction he expected from his answer, he asked satisfaction another way, and out they went. (laughs) (laughs) Duels were a well-established part of early modern European noble culture as a means for settling disputes and grievances, and, most importantly, for defending an individual's point of honour. Ordinarily, the combatants uh, exchanged courteously worded cards, formally agreeing the challenge. Seconds would be named... The parties would meet at the appointed time and place, and the choice of weapon would be made. Finally, once the arrangements had been met, the combatants would politely salute each other before engaging in Mortal combat. But in the case of Wogan and McMahon, the majority of the book Protocol had been classed clean out of the window. It <laughs> just went out in the early morning. On a July morning in 1718, the local residents of Urbino awoke to the sound of cold steel clashing outside their homes. Upon peeping out their windows, they would have been shocked to find two foreign gentlemen, respected adherents of James III, and newly installed guests of Pope Clement XI, looking a little dishevelled, one wounded on the arm, the other on the cheek, as they cut and parried with swords in the morning light. It is unclear how the fighting was brought to an end, but neither party was mortally wounded. The Duke noted that the duelers were seen by the people, so it made a great deal of noise adding rather ominously that their master is very angry with them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you can imagine the Duke of Mara dictating this letter to a secretary and the private conversations that may have happened between them and a deal among the rest of the court. The Irish? Drinking? Dancing and fighting? No, this can't be. Oh, stop it, you're killing me, this sort of thing, you know. Or the Duke of Foreman, James Butler, the highest-ranking Irishman in the service of James III, upon reading this letter, raising his hand to his head, Oh, God, no! (laughs) Cringing at the news that two Irishmen of rank at the court had let the side down so badly. It seems that some stereotypes might have a basis in historical fact after all. So... um, A closer examination now into why these unnecessary events took place indicates that other things that may have have been at play. Wogan was an Anglo-centric palesman who was proud of his old English family heritage, while McMahon was most likely of Gaelic stock. Old distinctions like that shouldn't be forgotten and may have played a part in this tale, however minor. Furthermore, Wogan had fought as a captain in the 1715 rebellion in northern England and upon his arrival in France was given an important task by James as a conduit for Jacobite correspondence in Lyon. He also travelled incognito around noble houses, noble houses of central Europe and had successfully negotiated a marriage match for his liege, but significantly had not been promoted for any of those tasks by James. Meanwhile, McMahon had been promoted by Lottor to the rank of colonel, for reasons that aren't immediately clear. His new commission brought his pension to 60 livres, whereas Wogan remained at 35, livres, So there could be a point of difference there. Wogan was later, in 1718, he later received 60, um, maybe after the fact, maybe some sort of um, grievance was brought to light, maybe through this duel or something. Could the green hand of jealousy have played a part, uh, however hidden, in this tale? Or is it also possible that something else may have occurred between two men, good companions, lodging in the same apartments, at an exclusively male court deprived of female company? I'll allow that suggestion to hover in the air for your own consideration. King James was justifiably furious. All of the recent political setbacks and the recent death of his mother, Mary of Modena, must surely have taken their toll on him. On the back of these successive blows, within months of having accepted the Pope's invitation to take up residence in the Papal States, He had to reprimand two of his loyal followers for having a drink-fuelled brawl in the streets. Ma remarked that it would take some time before they can pacify their master in order for them to appear publicly in his his presence. They will first have a public and severe reprimand with the certification to all of his people that if any such thing happen again, how severely he will use them. Their king had them arrested and sent to their rooms. The two Irishmen, clearly feeling rather sheepish, wrote to the Duke of Mar on July 22nd that, thinking themselves unworthy to make any direct application to his majesty for his pardon, being too afraid of engendering further royal wrath, we hope you will use your interest with him on our behalf. Uh, The two culprits also pointed out that this accident makes no impression but to redouble both the one and the other. To conclude... While no letter confirms that it, it is likely that the duke did indeed come to the rescue of the Irish gentleman. It is unclear whether James proceeded with this intended punishment, but Wogan and MacMahon could count themselves very fortunate not to have been expelled from the court. More serious divisions at the court between old, surgeons, old servants from Saint-Germain and new favourites of the king, most notably James Murray of Stormont and uh, John Hay, his brother-in-law, Uh, would fester and would ultimately cause major problems for James in the years to come that followed after the Corps had moved to Rome, particularly in the division between James and the Queen-to-be, Princess Clementina. As for our two duelists, Colonel Donald McMahon went on to pursue a military career in the service of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Captain Charles Wogan, however, would soon afterwards perform his most valuable service yet to James. Having personally arranged the marital match during the mission described earlier, he rescued his liege's betrothed, Princess Maria Clementina Sobieska, from confinement in Innsbruck and escorted her safely to Rome in May 1719. The following September, the marriage between James and Clementina took place, securing a powerful marriage alliance, much-needed financial resources, and the prospect of a Stuart succession so that the dream of a Stuart restoration could be supported yet a while longer. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed the paper. Thanks very much for your kind attention.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie for slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.